You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, Midtown family. Uh, Great to be with you guys this morning and always fun to see you enjoying each other's company. I love that. I feel like there's still music playing behind me. I'm not going to dance, I promise. And my wife walks right in front of me too. Great. Love it. Um, I'm excited to continue our series in Colossians together. It's been a real fun book. And, um, but I see so many new faces. I just want to introduce myself so you know who I am. My name is Justin. I serve as our associate pastor. And again, if you're visiting for the first time, we're so, so glad that you're here. We hope that you already met some nice people and kind people. And we really hope that you experience God's love for you this morning. Uh, we're going to get, get back into the book of Colossians. And just as a little brief reminder, if you weren't with us, because I see, do see a lot of new faces, this was a, a letter that Paul wrote uh, to a church that he had never met before. Paul was in prison. And then there's a guy named Epaphras that went to Paul and visited him in prison and told him about all the wonderful things that God was doing in the city of Colossae. And this, he tells them all the things that how they had come to faith and how they were growing their love for one another and all the things that God was doing. But then we know also contextually that Epaphras also told them about a lot of the ideologies, a lot of the arguments, and a lot of the things were actually coming against the church and coming against the new believers. And so Paul, in large part, writes this letter to communicate to this church that he's never met and really to combat the fine-sounding arguments and the ideologies that were coming up against the people at that time. And if you were here on week one when we kind of opened up the book, I said what helps me is to think of this book as like a helpful metaphor is what I call drift bumps. You know, those little bumps on the side of a highway where if you start to sleep or, or you just kind of veer off, that pop, 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 it, it reminds you like, you better, get back, you better get back on the lane, right? And so it's been helpful for me as I read this book just to think that this is a book about drift bumps where he's trying to say, hey, here are the things that are coming against you and we want to keep you focused singularly on the person of Jesus and his work. And so it's all about the supremacy of Christ and how central he is to keep us from drifting. And so that's what this book is about. Today, we're actually going to jump into the first part where he actually starts to attack some of these different arguments that were the fine-sounding arguments of the day. And it's actually the longest passage that we're going to do in this whole series, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, and I forgot to get someone else to read it. And so I'm going to read it and only read a portion of it, and then we are going to walk all the way through it as we go this morning. But if we can, just these first couple verses, if you can or are able, let's stand in honor of God's Word. We'll read here kind of what introductory text. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us as we get started. Father, we want to hear from you today. Uh, We thank you that you've protected uh, letters like this that we see as as your authoritative word. And we can look at the arguments of that day and be compelled to think about the arguments of, of our day and be compelled to keep Christ at the center of our faith. We pray that Jesus would be exalted in this message and the worship that we have in response, 
and that you indeed would be our center, Jesus, that we would say, living in him. In Jesus' name, amen. We can see from the introductory verse here, Paul kind of tells you exactly why he's writing this. I'm writing this so that no one will deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. In a moment, we're going to look into what some of those arguments would be, but for now, I really want to point your attention to what I consider to be the pivotal two verses in the whole book of Colossians. In fact, if you wanted to just summarize the whole book, these would be the two verses that would summarize it. That's verse 6 and 7. And Paul's going to say, so far, if you've noticed in this letter, you might not remember, but he, he kind of writes this letter, and he hasn't yet given them. Here, we're just into chapter 2, and he's yet to give them an imperative or a directive or instruction, like, here's what I want you to do. So he does what Paul normally does in his letters. He starts off with some greetings and kind of tells how he's been praying for them. He then does a whole portion that we'll talk about a little bit about today, about the exaltation of Christ and the supremacy of Christ. And then he tells a little bit about himself and what's in his heart and what he wants for them. But you don't see it yet to see a command until you get to this one right here in verse 6. Here's the imperative. And here's the one verse I want you to memorize. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. We'll stop right there for now. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, like connected to him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thanksgiving. You could kind of look at those first verse and six as kind of a part one and a part two. Part one, you might call it starting well. Part two, you might call it ending well. Let's look at starting well. Part one, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. What he's calling them to do is to think about how they came back to faith. Just as you received him by faith, just by grace, that's how you received him. And if you were here the first week, we talked about how we don't really know how the gospel got to Colossae. It was this town that was about 100 miles away from Ephesus, and so most people think that what happened was that there was this revival in Ephesus that you can read about in Acts chapter 19, and in this revival, because it was a city that many people came to, it's likely that some of the Colossians went to that city, were caught up in that revival, came to faith, and brought their faith back. And that's what Epaphras, when he went to go visit Paul in prison, he's telling him this story of what happened to them. And he's describing exactly what they came to believe in the very first part in chapter one. I want to read a few verses here that talk about how he was praying for them and what he was excited about and what he had heard from Epaphras. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ. That's what happened. They came to faith in Jesus and the love that you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope that's stored up for you in heaven and about what you've already heard, the true message of the gospel. The good news had come to them, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus that's come to you in the same way this gospel's bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as has been doing among you since the day you heard about it. And what did they understand? They understood God's grace. They truly understood God's grace, this gospel of grace that you're saved by grace, nothing that you can do of your own, but simply by putting your faith in Jesus for what he's done for you, that's how you come to faith in Jesus. So when Paul's saying, remember, just as you put your faith, just as you called out on him as Christ, Jesus as Lord, that's how I want you to continue to live, by that same faith. This word, uh, Christ Jesus as Lord, is only used a couple times in Scripture, and it's thought to be like one of the early declarations of someone's faith. Uh, that you would say, like in 1 Corinthians, it says that no one can say except by the Spirit that Christ is Lord. Or my favorite verse when I'm trying to tell people the simplest version of the gospel is in Romans 10, which says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's what a simple confession. He's calling them to remember back that you came to faith by grace, through faith, and you named Christ as your Lord. Remember that. That's what he said. That's how you started. Now part two, let's think about how you end. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. He's saying, don't add anything to it. Don't subtract anything from it. Don't add anything to Jesus. Don't subtract from Jesus. Don't veer from Jesus. Don't drift to the left or right. Keep your eyes on Jesus and your faith in him. You need to continue to live in him. And that's why this is really the the two key scriptures to all of Colossians. He's gonna make these arguments that we'll look at in a minute, but he's first telling them, this is what I want for you. My first command, I'm giving you this letter, my first instruction. Just as you received him, continue to live by faith in the grace of God. He then develops a little bit more on what he means by this by the next verses in verse seven. Rooted and built up in him. So he takes kind of two metaphors, the idea of being rooted, like a metaphor of a plant, that if you want to live in him, you need to be rooted in him. Like Jesus famously said, I am the vine, you're the branches. Apart from you, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, if you stay connected to the vine, you will produce fruit. Or you think of the other example, rooted or built up in him. It's the idea of like, you wanna build your life around Christ. You don't wanna be building on a a foundation that's not him. He is the cornerstone. He's the one that we're centered around, rooted and built up in him, but also strengthened in the faith as you were taught. Paul's trying to tell them that you can actually grow in your faith. This childlike faith that led you to your salvation is a faith that can be strengthened, can grow, but only if you remain rooted to him. And more importantly, as it says here, rooted to the things that they were taught. He's saying, remember what Epaphras or whoever it was that brought the gospel first to the Colossians, remember the message of the gospel and what you were taught and stay connected and rooted to it and you can grow in your strength. That's one of the greatest things of the Christian faith is that when we come to faith in Christ, we've started at the apex. There's nothing else that can be added. We've come to Christ, we've put our faith in him. But the joy of the Christian life is the rest of the life we get to dive deeper into understanding its depths. Nothing added, nothing subtracted, just growing, strengthening our faith, learning more about what we had been taught. And finally, he adds overflowing with thanksgiving, overflowing with thankfulness. And I I looked at this at the start, it sometimes feels like it's a little piece that's outset. Like you get the idea of like, just as you came to Christ Jesus as Lord, so live in him, that makes sense. And how do you do that? You do that by remaining rooted and built up in him and strengthening your faith, but then there's just kind of random and overflowing with thankfulness. Well, I think I know why Paul put this here. It's because for him, the idea of remaining faithful, thankful is the idea of keeping your heart connected to what Christ has done for you. To overflow with thankfulness, to always be mindful, to always be grateful, to always praise God for what he has done. In fact, you see, it's kind of a key theme throughout the book. In chapter one, when he actually prayed for them, he prayed this part. He prayed that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. His prayer was that they would continue to grow in thankfulness that would keep them rooted to their gospel. In the next chapter, in chapter three, we're gonna see Paul give instructions to the church and here's what he's gonna say about what their worship should look like. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach, admonish, one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. For us to continue 
to strengthen our faith and to continue to be rooted, we have to constantly come with worship, remembering our gospel and rejoicing in what Jesus has done for us. Paul knew that that was what was gonna help them in their fight against the fine-sounding arguments that they were facing. These are the two most important verses in the book of Colossians. I'd hope that you would actually consider taking them uh, to memory, to memorize them this week, because they tell us the main point of the book, the first command, as you came to Christ, stay faithful in Christ. In fact, to help them get a little bit in your mind, I don't do this normally, but I'd like to ask if we could read these verses together, if they're up behind us here. If you feel comfortable, let's read these out loud and ask that God would put these into our heart. So then... Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thanksgiving. Thank you. Amen. Now, the question is, why was this command so important contextually for them? It's because there were ideologies, there were philosophies, there were theologies of the day that were competing for the centrality of keeping our eyes on Christ and staying rooted in him. They were kind of come from three different versions. There was at least this uh, early version of Gnosticism, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But this early version of Gnosticism was one of the fine-sounding arguments. There was also mysticism. There was people that thought you had to connect with God, but only to some higher spirits in the spiritual realm. And then there was also Jewish legalism. And all three of these things, you'll see in the arguments that we're about to look at, that it's not clean exactly like this one's for that, this one's for that. There's this mix. And what Paul was worried about was syncretism, that they were going to take what they had begun in their faith in Christ, and then they were going to mix in little bits of this and little bits of that, and they were going to drift. Christ amidst all these right over the drift bumps. And so Paul's going to say, no, you have to stay rooted in Christ amidst all these things that you're facing. I like to say there's a couple different ways that we drift, and these will be the ones that we look at. There's what I call theological drift. We can probably all say that we've seen this. We've either done it ourselves, or we've seen it in the lives of a friend or the lives of a whole church, for that matter. Theological drift. This is where Christians embrace a worldview of the culture. And as they do, they synchronize their faith with the culture, and then they just end up becoming just like the world. Or there's religious drift. When Christians and churches turn to rules and then they end up becoming legalistic and judgmental, their posture is that we're righteous and you guys aren't. There's what I call experiential drift. That's when Christians and churches focus just on experiences and, then, and that all these experiences that they have, and they think that they're better than other people and they're closer to God than other people, and they become prideful. Or there's what I call practice drift. This is when Christians and churches where the spiritual disciplines become not a means to an end, but they could become the means themselves. And they get caught in ceremonialism and ritualism. Have you experienced that? Things like that, personally? It can happen. It can happen to an individual. It can happen to a whole body of Christ. And so Paul's writing this letter to start to address some of these things now. But I want you to hold in that first command. The first command is, so as you came to faith in Christ, as you named Christ Jesus as Lord, So continue to live in him as opposed to these other things that we'll look at now. Let's look first at theological drift, which really primarily was this idea with Gnosticism. Next verse, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And that's the phrase I want you to look at. 
rather than on Christ. Anything, any philosophical, ideological, theological thing that takes you apart from Christ, that isn't focused, centered fully on Christ, is adrift. So one of the primary philosophies that he was attacking, I said, was Gnosticism. And if you want to listen two sermons ago, Matt did a fantastic job describing in depth what Gnosticism was in in those early stages. So go back and listen to that. But for now, let me just say that part of it was that they believed that there was all matter was evil and all immaterial things were, were good and were pure. And so they, what, if they really held to that belief, then they're going to deny the deity of Christ because how could God come to dwell in, a, in an earthly body? That was some of the things that they were fighting. In addition, to that, in addition to that, the Gnostics thought that there was some spiritual power because you had to get up in touch with a spiritual power to get closer to God. And so... In essence, your salvation in Christ then wasn't complete. You needed more to add more to it. And so Paul is going to address this in the next few verses, proclaiming specifically the deity of Christ, that he came to dwell in bodily form and the completeness of our salvation, that nothing needs to be added, that Christ is above all. There's no other spirits that we need to go to. In verse 9 and 10, for in Christ, the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. In Christ, you've been brought to fullness he is the head over every power and authority. You see it there? You see, he just attacks all three of those things right away. First, Christ has a fullness. The fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, Gnostics. Yes, Christ is God come in the flesh. He's fully God and he really dwelt in him. He's not partially God. He's not a spiritual being. It was God in the flesh. Secondly, that we've been brought to fullness in Christ. There's nothing that needs to be added. When we put our faith in Jesus, Colossians, you guys were completely saved. There's nothing that needs to be done fully. You've been brought to fullness. And as for the spiritual things that you need to submit to that might help you get closer to Christ, no. Jesus, the head of all of it. He's the head of all spiritual beings. There's no secret knowledge that can be obtained in any other way. Christ is it. At its core, what the Gnostics were trying to do was change who Jesus was. They were proclaiming a false Jesus. And Paul's saying, don't do that. (laughs) No, you don't. This one that we proclaim to you, this faith that you first had, the one that you received was that Christ was God in flesh, that he died for your sins and he rose from the dead and you put your faith in him and you're saved by grace through faith. That's what they believed when they first believed. And the Gnostics are trying to get them off topic, to get them to drift. Now, this kind of theological drift, particularly around who Jesus is and the person of Jesus, is most commonly seen in like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. Uh, those are the ones that believe in a Jesus, but they've, they've said that Jesus is not God. I had the uh, joy when I did campus ministry at UT of working with this uh, group on the campus called the Interfaith Council, which was good. So we had, the, we had Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Baha'i, all kinds of different groups. And I think that there are some things that we actually can do together and, and serve the common good of the campus. And we did do some things like that. But we could only work together so far because it, when it comes to the person of Jesus, we radically disagree. One of the guys that I got closest to was the Mormon uh, minister named uh, Sean. And I, th- I think it was a time when Mitt, Mitt Romney was running for president because all of a sudden there's this huge campaign of like, Mormon uh, studies that you could go, Mormon informational meetings. And I think they're trying to normalize Mormonism. And I went to these things just to get the information and to continue our relationship with Sean. But finally, after one of the information meetings, I was able to say, here is what I believe. Jesus is God in the flesh. Do you believe that? And he finally said, no, I don't. I said, okay, that's 
that's fine, but that's where we disagree. Like for me, Christ is everything, and he is God. And we might not think that there's, the cults are the only ways that we do that, because I think in our culture, even in Christian culture, we do it in different ways. We proclaim a false Jesus as well. I like to call one the, the no miracles Jesus. Yeah, I, I'll read the Gospels, but I don't really believe that Jesus walked on water, that he calmed the seas, that he healed and had that authority, the, the no miracles Jesus. A lot of our friends probably believe that. You've got the no controversial Jesus that, yeah, I don't, I, I don't believe Jesus really ever stirred up controversy. <laughs> he, he, I don't know if I really believe some of the things that he taught about money or marriage or loving your enemies. No, no I don't believe in the no controversial Jesus or, or most common perhaps in our day and age is the no hell Jesus. When Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in scripture, we want to say that Jesus didn't talk about there being two kingdoms, that you were either father of the devil or you're the father under the father of lights. Like Paul even writes in this letter that we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, but no people want to make Jesus out to be, no, I don't believe in the, the no hell Jesus, or, or the worst would be the no resurrection Jesus. But he was a man, he died as a good example, but he didn't rise from the dead. Like that's the way that we do it, I think, in our cultures. And those are the philosophies, those are the ideologies, those are the theologies that we butt ourselves up against. And what Paul would say to us or what this book would say to us is we've got to keep Christ at the center. And we believe that Christ is who he says he is. Now I recognize that there's some of you here who might be seeking or you're not really sure. And, and because we believe, we believe what we believe about that because we believe that the gospels are authoritative. And so we read the gospels believing that God protected them and everything that's in them is a true account of what happened. And, and some people don't believe that, which would lead you to believe in different kinds of Jesuses. And if you, if you feel that way, we're just so glad that you're here and would love to continue a conversation about that. We would love that. But we believe that Jesus is the one of the gospels, that he is the one that was a miracle worker, controversial, talked of heaven and hell. And most importantly, he rose from the dead. That's the Jesus that we believe in. So theological drift can happen when we stop thinking about the real Jesus and we start hearing about a different kind of Jesus. But it can also happen when we start believing a different kind of gospel, which is where Paul turns to next in verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision, not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. See, they weren't just tempted to believe in a different kind of Jesus, that the other messages that were coming to them from the Gnostics who would take down the gospel by their beliefs, there was also the religious leaders of that day that would add things to the gospel. And right here, he's just so clearly trying to say that, no, your salvation is complete in Christ. That what Jesus did for you on the cross settled it. All of your debt is done. You don't need to add circumcision or other physical things to your, your faith. Christ has paid it all. And then there's no other uh, authorities that you have to appeal to because he 
defeated all those authorities. He triumphed over them at the cross, made a public spectacle of them at the cross. That's what Jesus has done for us. And Paul's trying to get them to say, don't drift from the person of Jesus. Also, don't drift from the gospel of Jesus. Hollow and deceptive philosophy was trying to get them off course and off drift. You with me? Let me read the verse back just a little bit differently to you then. Just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, Midtown Church, so continue to live in him, not drifting theologically from the person of Jesus or from the gospel of Jesus. Let's look at the next temptation. The next fine-sounding argument was more of a religious tone. So Paul writes them this. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the reality is found in Christ. Look at that last phrase. Shadow versus reality. These things are a shadow. I want you to see the reality of Jesus Christ. One of the things that you see in the New Testament is the apostles began as a Jewish church. And so most of the people who first followed Jesus were Jewish. But as the gospel goes from Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, now more and more of the churches are a mix of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And so one of the things that they continually fought throughout, and you can see it kind of played out in the narrative book of Acts. You'll see that even in Acts chapter 15, there's a whole church council to talk about what do we do when people have different backgrounds and what do we do with some of the ceremonies that we the Jews think are important, but they don't think are important. Is it really just faith just in Christ? And if so, how do we do these things differently? And the bottom line instructions on things like this were that these were secondary matters, that you could worship Jesus, you could follow Jesus, and you could have certain days that you exercise things, or you could do certain celebrations, you could have dietary things if you wanted to, because it's secondary, it's not primary. And the Gentiles could do things differently, where they don't have special days, or they eat differently. Let me give you a glimpse of some of the teaching that was happening at that day. Like in Romans 14, Paul kind of writes about this specific issue, and here's what he said. Accept those whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters, secondary matters, disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God accept, has accepted them both. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, the servant stands or falls, and they will stand before the Lord, and he's able to make them stand. One person considers one day more special, sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. You get an idea there what kind of the early church was facing, where there's just differences. But here in Colossae, there's apparently some of the religious leaders, some of the Jewish people that are trying to add things to it add things to what Jesus has done. I like to call it uh, putting the accent on the wrong syllable, right? Putting the accent on the wrong syllable. What they're doing is they're making secondary things, primary things. And Paul's calling them to say, no, keep primary things primary in Christ. Jesus is, is primary. The problem that happens, though, in religious groups so often can happen to us and gets us adrift is we like to add things to it. And what it does is it leads us to be very judgmental people. We start to judge other people thinking about what we do versus what they do. 
which is always the problem with legalism because legalism is all about what I do for God, whereas the gospel is what God has done for us. And Paul's trying to straighten them out and tell them it's not about what you do for God. It's about what God does for you. And legalism is also all about external appearances. Let me just kind of button things up on the outside where you're not caring about what's really going on in the heart. And Paul's saying, no, don't do that either. Stay rooted to Christ. He's the one that's got to transform you and he's going to transform you from the inside out. Don't make secondary things primary things. You might not experience it in the Jew-Gentile tension that they had in their day, but we experience things like this all the time. Some of you could probably tell some stories about churches that you grew up in or experiences that you had where ye became legalistic, judgmental people. I had the joy uh, last week of meeting someone that visited our church a couple weeks ago and actually came to faith, put her faith in Jesus. So, So praise God for that. And she said that she came to Midtown, and the reason she liked it so much is because the way that the people treated her. And what she said <laughs> totally shocked me. She said before she came to Midtown, she went to this other church a few times. I said, you know, where all did you visit? And she didn't name the church, but she said, I went to this one church. And a few t- my second time that I was there, someone brought me a bag full of clothes and said, uh, you ought to wear these to be more appropriate in where you worship. I thought, holy smokes. This is a person who was just trying to return back to follow Jesus. Like she had got a long story, was coming to seek God and look for salvation. And someone hands her a bag of clothes. Say that's the accent on the wrong syllable. (laughs) Making a secondary thing, a primary thing. Now that might be pretty extreme, but I think that we do this in some more subtle ways. I think about legalism through denominationalism. You know, maybe some of us grew up at church that really looked down on other type of churches and denominations. We, we can get caught up in that so easily. I think about legalism through sacraments and the worship style, and we do things the right way. Or maybe most prominently, legalism through what some call purity culture or any type of culture where we create like a hierarchy of sins where this one is weightier than this one and this one's weightier than that one, and you can do these things and we'll ignore it, but you do these things you can't. Can you see how you could get mixed up? Paul's saying, man, drift bumps. (laughs) Don't go there. These things, by the way, are only meant to be shadows. The secondary things are meant to be shadows, to point us to Christ. They can help us, but let's keep them shadows. Let's keep the primary thing, Jesus. So let me say to you, Midtown Church, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to live in him by not drifting religiously into legalism. There's a third thing that he addresses here in verse 18. I call it experiential drift or mysticism. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about all that they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind, but they've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by all its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Let me point your attention to that. Lost connection with the head. Now, if you were to read the full context, just a few verses before the ones we started reading today was an exaltation calling Christ the head of the church. That's what he's talking about. They've lost connection with Jesus. And they've lost it by going the way of these mystics, by going the way of thinking that there's some spiritual thing that they need more than they need Jesus. And what's terrible is in doing so, look what it produced in them pride. It just produced a bunch of pride. 
they had a false humility. They said that they were really humble, but they weren't really humble. They were prideful. So if a religious drift moves us toward legalism and judgmentalism, this experiential drift, what it does is it moves us toward mysticism and pride rather than this false humility. These people love to tell everyone about all the experiences that they've had and how they're closer to God than everybody else because of the things that they've experienced. And you can't have it. I can have it. Can you see how the church could do that? Could get adrift? That's what was happening to them. That doesn't mean that God doesn't give us spiritual experiences because, man, by God's grace, he does. And praise God for that because we need those in our lives. We need spiritual experiences. The problem is, do they lead to pride or not? I was thinking about this. I love that there's a guy named Paul that we're reading from, and he actually rehearsed to himself in the book of 2 Corinthians in the third person because he doesn't even want to claim this to be himself. But if you remember, he says, I know a guy who was caught up in the third heaven. And he's talking about this experience that he had. But then what does he say? He says, I boast not in those experiences. I boast in my weakness. Like we can have experiences, God will give them, but let them produce humility in you and not pride. In fact, the whole book of 2 Corinthians, if you ever want to read it, it's a whole book where Paul's defending his ministry against these people who've come in and they call themselves the super apostles. And their ministry was better. Like what an oxymoron, the super apostles. Okay, but he's defending himself and he's defending himself constantly by saying, I've taken the low place. I've humbled myself, but you guys are just full of pride. So if religious drift into legalism makes us compare ourselves with others based on what they do, experiential drift and mysticism means that we actually start comparing ourselves by what others have experienced compared to what we've experienced. I experienced this most profoundly in a, in a pretty terrible way. Um, when I was in campus ministry, one of the cool things that we had is we had about, uh, we had a campus house of prayer, and what our ministry did is we worked to like 60 different churches and organizations. So we're talking like tons of the whole body of Christ from all different denominations and affiliations, but we all worked together to pray and to have mission together. And one of the neatest things we had for about 10 years is we had a campus house of prayer where people could come in from all the different groups and pray, sign up for an hour of prayer. Some years we had like 120 hours a week where people were in our building praying. It was awesome. But get it, they're all from different denominations and places. Well, there's this one group that had this nighttime prayer hour, and uh, I'm not here to judge whether their experiences were true or not. In fact, I, I probably think that they are, but the, something went wrong in the process. But they started inviting other people into these experiences, and it started causing a huge divide even within the campus house of prayer. One guy that came from a little bit more conservative background got caught up in it, and he just completely changed and so his friends were saying, why did you do this? And other friends were saying, well, no, he's, he's growing in the Lord. What actually happened with this guy is he thought that he could communicate with, with God better than anyone else could. In fact, he started thinking that he was Jesus. I'm not joking. He thought he was the one that was the conduit of Jesus actually speaking, so much so that in one of his business classes, the police had to be called and he got taken straight to a mental hospital. Terrible, terrible story. But these people were experimenting in different things that, that caught them up in something that at least for this one person caught him. By God's grace, I'll tell you that he's doing well. He's in sound mind. And of all things, he's a Catholic priest now. So there's a good end uh, to the story. But to see that happen right in front of my eyes, people that were just in, in their experiences, probably genuine experiences, but, but not leading to humility, leading to pride, began to compare themselves with others. And back and forth it went, we're closer to God and you guys don't know the way. And it was terrible. 
Now, we might not have things like this, maybe to that extreme, but I'd venture to say that a lot of us here have been in a, in a setting where someone else was describing their experience with God, maybe, maybe totally purely motive, but you just thought, I wish I had that or her. Do they know God better than I can, or do they have special access, or, or are, they, are they different? Does God favor them? Like, you see how that can happen sometimes? Even well-meaning. And Paul's trying to say, don't let yourself get off course with the mystics. Don't let you judge yourself by your experiences and let these experiences be primary. Seek God, not the experiences. Seek the giver, not the experience. So Midtown Church, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to live in him by not drifting experientially into mysticism. One more thing that Paul's going to address. I told you this was a long passage, but here you go to the last one. I call this practice drift, practice drift or asceticism. Since you died with Christ and the elemental, principle, or element, elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations and deeds have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The final way that Paul begins to speak of drift is this drift in the way that we actually practice our faith. The practices, and this should be a pretty important one for us to pay attention to because after all, our goal is to practice the way of Jesus together. And three times a year, we take on a practice to practice together. And so practices, practices themselves can't be wrong. But where you go adrift, where you hit those drift bumps, is when the practices become the ends and not the means. And they become the thing that you are not seeking God, but you're seeking this, this practice instead. This was kind of an attempt to talk to kind of both the religious and to the Gnostic things. The Gnostic people, because they thought the body was bad, some of the ways that they would practice, they would just start harsh treatment of the body. So he's talking some about the Gnostic beliefs that were trying to take them adrift. But others was the Jewish legalism is a little bit in here too, where he's talking about how they would do things and have do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those that are religiously adrift by legalism, they compare themselves to others by what they do. Those experientially adrift by mysticism, they compare themselves to others by what they've experienced. And here in this leather category, those adrift in practice by asceticism compare themselves to others based on what they do not do. Here's all the things that we don't do that you guys do. And the ascetics, what they tried to do was they tried to control their sensual indulgences by these disciplines. Now, again, I have to say, like, disciplines are, are important. It's important for us to do the things that we're doing as a church and practicing, but we say it all the time, it gets wrong in two ways. If you're not careful, the drift lines on each side is one is, are you doing this now to earn God's favor? Are you doing it to be with God and grow with God and become more like Jesus? Or the other side is, are you doing this to be seen by men? Do you want others to see what you're doing and see your practices? Those are the two lines. And he's saying, stay in the middle. Don't do this for men. Don't think that you're going to earn God's favor by doing these things, but use the spiritual practice as a means to an ends, and God is the ends. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us that we would, would pray, that we should fast, that we should give, each time saying, when you fast, when you pray, when you give. But he says, don't do it like the Pharisees do it, because they do it 
to earn the praise of man. That's when you get adrift. Disciplines themselves, spiritual practices themselves are a fantastic way to get close to God, but they're the means and not the ends. You've maybe never noticed it. I hope you will from now on after I tell you this, but every time that we do a spiritual practice together, we put together a little prayer guide, a little guide that goes along with it, right? Have you noticed in the introduction to every single one that we've put together, there's a very firm part that says, we are practicing this, but you need to know this is the means to an end. The end is closeness with God. It's God. It's being transformed to be more like Jesus. That's the end. Don't let this practice, even though we're doing it together, become the ends. Keep it in its rightful place as the means. And so Paul is reminding them that they've already died with Christ. They're dead to all these things. There's rules and regulations. And the Hebrew people like to add on laws to laws to laws. And if we're not careful, we can do the same. If you're battling compulsions, sensual indulgences, like it says here, sexual indulgences, food indulgences, substance indulgences, money spending indulgences, Spiritual disciplines can be a way to help you grow and give those over to God, but he's trying to remind them, don't let them become the ends, let them become, keep them as the means, and they can help you because what you need is to be transformed from the inside out, not the outside in. So stop focusing on all the things you want to do on the outside. Instead, stay rooted to Christ and let him train you, trade, change you from the inside out. Y'all get that? That's what Paul's trying to remind them again, the centrality of Christ and staying rooted to him, that he's the one that's going to change you. In fact, in chapter three, which is the very next verses we'll be teaching on next week, he's actually gonna get into that. Like how do we actually get to move toward change and seeing that change in our life? So Midtown Church, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to live in him not, by not drifting into practicing asceticism. As it was in Colossae, it was in Austin, Texas. It is in Austin, Texas. There are cultural ideologies, religious theologies, things in the world, things even within the church, within the Christian community that can take us adrift, both in our orthodoxy, like what we believe about Jesus and the gospel, and they can take us off adrift in orthopraxy and how we practice our faith. And Paul's warning to the church is the same as our warning today for you. Midtown Church, let's not drift. In fact, the, the elders and the women's leadership team met together this Thursday morning, and, and one of the questions that we asked was, let's think harder about our culture, both within our church and in the culture of Austin. What are the fine-sounding arguments? What are they? Let's make ourselves aware of them, that we can make sure we're not drifting and we keep Christ at the center. And we're going to continue to do that, invite you to do that in your groups, in your heart, and your home as well. Will you do me the favor of reading this key verses one more time? Verses six and seven. So then, I mean, read aloud with me, yes. <clears throat> so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Hey, let's continue to live in him, Midtown. Let's, let's stay rooted and built up in him. Let's stay strengthened in the faith that we've been taught in the gospel. And let's worship now in response and overflow with thanksgiving. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. 
Thank you.